All right, I encourage you to grab a Bible and go to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. There's a, probably a, a red Bible in front of you. If you still don't have a Bible, you can open up to that one. I think it's probably between 300 and 400, the page marker. Um, and if you don't want to do that, just look on the bulletin as well as on the screen. So if you're just joining us, uh, we are spending a, a few weeks uh, just kind of looking at different episodes in the life of David. And today we come to a chapter that seems really odd and really different and kind of out of place. It's like we left David carrying the head of Goliath, and now some things are changing for him. So I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's word together. We are going to read all of chapter 19. Um, and so it is a pretty lengthy chapter. It's 24 verses. So if you get tired, like halfway through, you can, you can sit down. There's a lot of grace there. So um, so yeah, beautiful little work. We're going to be working primarily in chapter 19, but we're kind of covering 18 through 20. They're all kind of one unit. And I'll kind of show how we'll do that here in just a few minutes. So starting in verse one. So Saul, who's the king at this time, told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So there you go. Kind of like, oh, now things have changed. All right. David's a big hero. Now he's, he's a fugitive or whatever. People trying to go after him and kill him. So, but Jonathan was very fond of David and he warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and, and will tell you what I find out. So Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. What he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life into his own hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel. You saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And so Saul listened to Jonathan, took his oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David would not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and, and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. And once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such a force that, he fled, that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. He was, he was sitting in this house with a spear in his hand. And while David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill, to kill him in the morning. But Michael, I think it's Michael. Some say it's Michal, but I'm kind of going with Michael. Maybe I'm a little fond of that name, but it is a woman here. All right, so, but Michael, David's wife, who's actually... Saul's daughter, we'll find that out here in just a minute, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. And then Michael took an idol and laid it in, in on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. And when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. And then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was, in, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. And Saul said to Michael, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? And when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there, and word came to Saul, David is in 
Naoth at Ramah. And so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and so he sent more men, and they also prophesied. And Saul was told about it again, so he sent a third time more men, and they also prophesied. And finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the cistern of Saku, and he asked, where, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. And so Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? One of the strangest passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, right? And i got to preach a message from this. But this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, once again, I'm just thankful for the word of God. It, it, it surprises us so much, man. We just probably would have never written a chapter like that, God, if this was authored by just humans. But this is authored by the Holy Spirit. This is your words, God. And so, Lord, help us to treat it like that. Help us to understand it. And then, Lord, may we submit and do what you want us to do in response to your revelation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in case you're kind of just joining us, let's, let's kind of review just a little bit so we can get somewhat of a context of what's going on here in chapter 19. So we see in chapter 16 that Samuel, the prophet of this time, goes to David and he anoints him as king and the Spirit of God comes on him and power. And following that, we see David kind of splitting time. All right, And what I mean by that is, is he spends some time still with his dad, Jesse, kind of overseeing and shepherding the sheep. But also he spends time in Saul's service. You know, he begins to uh, offer kind of a, a way of soothing Saul's spirit because, you know, Saul has been given by God in judgment of Saul this, this kind of tormenting evil spirit upon him that sends him in kind of this dark, uh, depressive mood. And the way that, that he gets soothing is through David's ability to play the harp. And so, so he kind of splits time for a little bit, goes back home, oversees a sheep and stuff like that, goes to Saul, plays music for him to kind of soothe this, this tormenting demonic spirit, so to speak, that's going on in Saul. And we saw last week in chapter 17, he shows up on the scene and, and wins an enormous victory for the nation of Israel and and defeating Goliath and carries that head to Jerusalem. And we see in the first part of chapter 18 that, that Saul kind of employs him into the army. And wherever David is, God is bringing him success. And so with all that's happening in David's life, all of a sudden there's a, a group of ladies that begin to write kind of a tune, a song, a, a poem, whatever you want to say of this, that, that kind of goes around here. And this is what the song said in chapter 18 of verse 7, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So this wasn't kind of written to, to kind of do a dig at Saul, but you got to be a really secure man to be able to celebrate the successes and the talents and the gifts of someone else that seems to be exceeding and succeeding beyond you. 
And, and Saul couldn't do that. And so we read in verses 8 and 9 this. Saul was very angry. And this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So jealousy, envy, angry. David was now a massive threat to Saul. He couldn't bless younger David. He saw David as his enemy. And so what we see, one of the most dangerous times in David's life here, in chapters 18 and 19, there are six attempts on Saul trying to kill David. He is so jealous of David, so hates David. His anger toward him is so venomous that he tries to kill him six times. And so I just want to walk through these real quick, these six kind of episodes that we see in these two chapters where Saul tries to kill David. So the first one we see in chapter 18 and verses 10 through 11, this is what it says. So the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul he was prophesying, kind of meaning he was kind of completely under his influence in his house. While David was playing the harp, this thing that, that God used to soothe Saul's spirit, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So that's the first attempt that Saul tries to to kill David with. The other two attempts that are in chapter 18 are a little more subtle. And the mindset here that Saul kind of takes is that if I can get him around the Philistines enough, eventually the Philistines will kill him and I'll get rid of him. And so we see this in verse 17, along with him wanting to sort of give his oldest daughter in marriage to him, Merib. And then he says this, look at verse 17. So Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. So that's kind of the bridal price in order to get her in marriage. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So he sends him out on all these raids, these, these battles, thinking that eventually the Philistines are going to kill him. But over and over, we read in chapter 18 that God gave him success and it didn't happen. That was the second attempt third one is this. So, so he kind of like backs out on giving Merib, his oldest daughter. He finds out that Michael is in love with David. So this weird kind of triangle here that's going on and finds out he's in love with David. So this is another opportunity. He thinks that he can get David killed. And this is what we read in verse 25 of chapter 18. And so Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. And so Saul's plan was to do what? To have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And I know that's just really weird and really strange. But that was kind of the, the bridal price in order to get his daughter, Michael. You're going to go out and get 104 skins of the Philistines. And so his mind says, I, if I expose him to enough harm, eventually the Philistines will take care of him. Well, we read in chapter 18 that God gives him success. And not only comes back with 100, he comes back with 200 which is just really nasty. But those are, that's three attempts in chapter 18. So, so Saul ups the ante. We see in chapter 19, three more attempts. So we read in verse one that, that he gets real, like just real direct. He goes to his son, says, I want you to kill, kill David. I want you to kill David. Not trying to hide anymore behind the Philistine army. No, 
Let's get rid of this guy. And so Jonathan, with the friendship that he has with David, goes and says, hey, you're going to need to be worried about this. And then he has a conversation with his dad and finally kind of convinces his dad to back off. And it seems like everything's great. And David kind of comes back under Saul's service. But that doesn't last very long as we read in verse 8. Look what happens. Once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such a force that they fled before him. So this stirs up, again, jealousy, envy because of the success of David. And look what happened in verse 9. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And while David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. So that's the fourth attempt as life. The fifth attempt came at this. Saul then sends spies. He sends kind of these hired killers to the house of David where his daughter lives and says basically, hey, when he wakes up in the morning, go kill him. And then verse 11, we see that Michael, his daughter, kind of shares this plan with David. And this is what we read. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. That's the fifth attempt at trying to kill David. David flees from, from that area, goes to Samuel, which is a very strange section of scripture. And it seems what's going on here is that Samuel has sort of this prophesying school with these men there. And so so David flees to Samuel, hides there with him. Saul finds out about it, and then he sends men to go capture him, bring him back so he can kill him. So he sends one group of men. They show up. The Spirit of God comes upon them, and they begin to prophesy, speak the words of God and praise and worship of God. So then Saul hears that, didn't work, sends another group. Same thing happens to them. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin to prophesy. Saul gets word of it. He sends a third group of people. The Spirit of God comes upon them. Same, same results. They can't capture David. All they can do is what the Spirit of God tells them to do. And they begin to prophesy, worship, speak the words of God. Saul gets fed up with it and said, I'm going to do it myself. And so we read this in verse 23. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But what happened to him? The same thing that happened to the first three groups. But the Spirit of God came even upon Saul and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. And we see in verse 24 that he stripped off his robe. He became naked. He lay prostrate on the ground all day and all night prophesying. And so the Spirit of God comes upon Saul in this moment and prevents him from doing what he came to do. And that is to capture David and kill him. You're not going to mess with God's plan. I will stop you. And that's what we see here. And so, wow, man, six times, six times, Saul tries to kill David and David escapes six times. One of the strangest two chapters in all of the Bible. And just in case you don't realize that, let me just review for you. We've got some kind of demon possession going on here. Some kind of evil spirit that's inhabiting Saul here. We've got a love triangle that's happening in these two chapters. We've got a murder-plotting father-in-law that's trying to kill David. We've got a royal family, his sons and his daughters that are scheming against their dad. And then finally, we've got a king prophesying naked on the ground all day 
and all night. And I don't know about you, and maybe you're sitting there going, what in the world do you do with a passage like this? And that's exactly what I was asking. Like, what in the world do you do with a passage like this? This is so strange, so different. Like, what in the world is going on here? Well, I just remember a, a passage of Scripture that, that I felt like the Lord sort of led me to as I kind of did some thinking and reflecting upon these two chapters. And there's a, a, a couple verses in the New Testament where Paul uh, speaking to a group of Christians, encourages them with this. Galatians 6, verse 9 says this, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. He says a similar thing also in, uh, to a group of Christians in Thessalonica when he says this in 2 Thessalonians three thirteen. And as for you, brothers, never Tire, or you can use the same translation, weary and doing what is right. So think about this with me, guys. Look, if you're, if you're a Christian here, if you're one who is in Christ, we understand this. We are, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. Like God, is, as he says in Ephesians, has prepared for us to step in and live out these good works that he has planned for us to do, these good works that that people in our family, in our neighborhood, in our jobs, in our schools are to experience. And in some mysterious way, it gives glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. So yeah, we're not saved by our good works, but by the Spirit of God, we're saved to do good works. And if you've been at this long, I guarantee you, you feel really weary at times. And there are times when you want to just give up and you throw in the flag and say, I'm done. Because our good works, because we live in a fallen, broken world, sometimes are not viewed as good works. And we don't receive any kind of reward or pat on the back. And we get weary. We lose heart. I mean, think about David. I mean, he didn't sign up for this. It's not like, you know, they're in a classroom. Who wants to be king? Me. Yeah, it's not... Like David didn't sign up for this role. He got anointed by God. And just think about this, guys. He, he goes back kind of keeping sheep. He, he enters into the service of Saul because he has this ability to play the harp. And he's using that to kind of soothe Saul and help Saul. He's doing a good thing for Saul. Then all of a sudden, he kind of shows up on the scene and he saves Israel from this massive giant. Every time he you know, he goes out into war. God brings him success. There's, there's so much good that David is doing, not only specifically for the nation of Israel, but specifically for Saul. God is using him to kind of establish and bring kind of like a stability in his own kingdom. He's doing a lot of good things. And he, God, Saul tries to kill him six times. Six times. And if you go to chapter 20, in the first part of chapter 20, you see, you see a, a weary David coming to his friend Jonathan saying this, what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? What, what wrong have I done against your father? All, 
I'm just trying to treat him well, honor him, respect him. I'm doing good for the nation of Israel. Here is a weary man that is weary from doing good. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. He's got a great little book called Leaping Over the Wall. It's about David's life. If you've not read it, man, it's a beautiful read. And he says this, and I just think he captures this so much better than even what I can do. But he says this, David is doing everything right. I mean, just, just pause there for just a second. Do you, do you ever feel like that, that you're doing everything right and you never can get ahead? You never can get a pat on the back? You don't feel like anyone recognizes it and just everything keeps going wrong? David is doing everything right when Saul tries to kill him. He has brought healing to Saul's troubled spirit through his playing of music. And he has killed the Philistine giant, ending his constant irritation for Israel's army and also quieting this, quieting this turbulence and troubled king. David is just what the nation needs. He is just what the king needs. He seems to have done both kinds of work modestly and unassumingly without showing off for doing these good works. He nearly gets himself killed. And if you go on and read for the next 10 years of David's life, he is running, he's hiding, he's living in caves. He is a foreigner in his own land because Saul won't give up, man. He's pursuing and pursuing, trying to get rid of David. And the question that I ask and the question I want to tell you before you, why? Why does David have to go through this? I mean, if God is who he says he is, if God is all-powerful, this, this, this God who's in control of all things, who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases, if God is that great and powerful, why? I mean, why, why not just keep David a little shepherd boy, right? Shepherd guy on the hill, unknown, and just let Saul do his deal. Eventually, he's going to implode. I mean, he's a, he's a maniac, right? Eventually, this is all going to why just leave him alone? Why, why, did you, why did you have to have that attendant of Saul remember that David could play the harp and then invite David into Saul's service? Why, why couldn't he remember Joe who played the banjo, right? I mean, I don't know if there's a Joe that played a banjo, but there's probably other people that had instruments. Like, why? Why did you remember David and introduce him into this? Why couldn't he just kind of be obscure until Saul got out of the scene. Why didn't God just do away with Saul a little earlier? Because God was making a king. That's why. God was making a king. And everything that happens to David during this 10-year period, God was using to prepare him to be the king that Israel needed. That's why. And if you're in Christ, he's doing the same for you. Do you hear me? If you're in Christ, what we see happening in David's life, he's also doing it for you. Now, some of you are sitting there going, whoa, 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 hold on here. <laughs> oh, man, this this sounds a little Narnia, like kings and queens. I'm not going to be a king and a queen. That's, that's fairy tale, little out there. Like, what in the world 
are you talking about? Well, just kind of hang with me here for just a few minutes. If you're a Christian here, look at me, look. The Holy Spirit is upon you in power. The very same spirit that indwelt David is the same spirit that comes upon you when you become a Christian. And also because now you are a child of God, the Bible tells us that we are co-heirs with Jesus. I mean, what does he say in Romans 8, 17? Now, if we are children, then what? We are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, some of you are going, well, what does that mean? This idea that I'm a co-heir with Jesus. And I think what, what the problem I would say that we have here is sometimes our vision of the future clouds our understanding of what we even read here, that we are co-heirs with Jesus. Some of us have a vision of the future that this new kingdom, this new heavens and new earth is more about like us being dressed in white and, you know, floating on clouds and playing harps like David did. And if that's the vision of the future, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. That sounds really boring and awful, right? Some of us have a vision of the future that's like, we call it the afterlife. I mean, just think about that phrase, afterlife. If you're married here and you refer to your marriage as after love, <laughs> right? How would that go over? Are you, are you following me? Some of us have a vision of the future, like one writer says, of like this perpetual high school reunion, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, let, let's give a high school reunion somewhat, you know, good things. Like, it's kind of fun for a few hours, isn't it? Because it's all, you know, kind of focused on the past and catching up with people. Hey, you remember when we did this goofy thing and we mooned the whole freshman class or whatever you did and you asked questions about that. I did not do that. So in just case people have a tendency to go, I must have been one law. I didn't know. I did not. Um, but we do. We, have, we ask questions like what happened to them? What's going on there? And look, for a few hours, that's a lot of fun. But listen to me. Listen to me. If that's what it's going to be like for millions of years, I don't want to have anything to do with it. That sounds awful. And that is not our future. Our future is not dressed in white, floating on clouds, playing harps. Our future is not this perpetual, huge high school reunion that goes on and on and on. No, our future is this, guys. You've got to remember, when, when God created Adam and Eve, what did he do? He gave them dominion. He gave them dominion over all that he created. Translation, he made them little kings and queens. They were to rule and reign over the entire universe by creating culture and using their gifts and, and sort of kind of taming the universe. That's what God did when he created Adam and Eve. He, he made them in his image. He was their representation to have dominion over all of the earth. Now look, guys, when Jesus shows up on the scene several thousand years later, he doesn't blow up the old. In fact, what Jesus is doing he comes to renew and to redeem and to restore humanity back to its original purpose as rulers having dominion over the universe, co-heirs with Jesus. That's why when we come to the gospels and Jesus begins to talk about this kingdom, we go like, what in the world is he talking about? I'll just give you a few examples. Luke chapter 22, verse 30, he's speaking this to his disciples. He says this, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. I know we're kind of jumping right in the middle of a context. So just take that out of the way. Look at what he says here. And sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking about 
his 12 disciples sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Man, we, we have a tendency to kind of blow by that. Well, that must be like, you know, maybe he had too much wine and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. But, but look, there's other places where, where um, the mom of James and John go up to Jesus and say, hey, look, I got one request. Will you make sure that my two boys, James and gone, John, gone, not gone, John, one sits on your right and the other on your left. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, hey, whoa, 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 honey. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a political one. He doesn't say that. Look what he says here in verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, talking about the disciples here, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. So, so there's, there's a hint here in some way where Jesus is redeeming and restoring and bringing a humanity back to its original tent where we will co-rule with Jesus. We will have dominion over the universe. That's our future. That's where we're headed. Russell Moore in his good little book called Onward kind of encompasses this idea and this quote, and because like, I get, I'm kind of laying before you a lot that's kind of hard to kind of seal up in a little nice package in five minutes, all right? So maybe this will spur more questions we can ask later, or maybe this will spur questions in your group. But listen to what Russell Moore says. I love this. If the kingdom is what Jesus announced it, it is. If the kingdom is this, and here's the kingdom, right? The merger of heaven and earth. When the dwelling place of God transforms creation and the kingdoms of this world, they become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Then what matters isn't just what is neatly classified as spiritual things. The natural world around us isn't just a temporary environment, but part of our future inheritance in Jesus. So therefore our jobs, here's some examples, preaching the gospel, loading docks, picking avocados, writing legislation, herding sheep. I think he had herding goats, but I'm trying to make a connection to David, so I put mine. Herding sheep, right, aren't accidental. Like, did you hear that? They're not accidental. Why, Lyle? Because of this. Our lives now are shaping us, preparing us for our future rule, and that includes honing of a conscience and a sense of wisdom and prudence and justice. God is teaching us as he taught Jesus and David, that's my addition, and David, to learn in the little things how to be in charge of great things. Our lives now are an internship for what is to come. So let me make some connections for you in case you're lost. The 10 years when David is running around for his life, living in caves, chasing all this, trying to hide, all this kind of stuff for 10 years. He's been anointed king, but he's not ruling as king. For 10 years, he's being chased after. And in those 10 years, God is using every single bit of it to prepare him to rule as king. And that's exactly what he's doing in our lives if you are a follower of Christ. Everything, everything. He is using it for your good, preparing you to rule with Jesus. That's our future. 
So then therefore, look, look, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart in doing good. God sees it. And God, just like he did when the life of David is using everything, your dead end job. God is using that. Your leaky basements, like I said last week, God is using that. Your, your frustrations with relationships that's in your world, God is using that. Your inability to pay the bills every month, God is using that. Your, your struggles with whatever it is. Look, this is what we know. God is using every bit of that to shape, to form, not just to make you more and more like Christ. That's a part of it, to, but to prepare you for what is coming in the future world, your rule and your reign alongside Jesus. That's where we're going. And so then therefore, look at me, look, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. God sees and he's working everything to prepare you for your future rule alongside Jesus. Now, some of you may be saying the same thing. I would say is like, okay, that sounds great, Lyle, but how? How, does, how do I not lose heart? How do I not grow weary? I mean, I'm just like, yeah, thank you. It just kind of inspires me a little bit. But, you know, I know I'm going to get out there and in three or four days, I'm just going to kind of be back where I'm at right now. Like, it's just, it's difficult. It's hard. You feel like you're always getting a, you know, a punch in the gut. How, how do I not grow weary? Like, what is the long-term plan here, so to speak? I would say that God gives us means that he empowers us to step into that helps us not to grow weary of doing good. And one of those means that God gives us is friendships. Friendships. For David, it was Jonathan. A man who voluntarily gave up his right to become the king. That's what we see in the first part of chapter 18. This man that was a beautiful, profound man of deep character. I mean, it's one of the reasons why a few weeks ago I talked about parenting, that sometimes we have this myth that parenting produces the kid. Well, man, you look at Jonathan, and like Saul's a train wreck, and then Jonathan is like this stud that just kind of puffs out on the pages, man. Man, he was a man of character, and this friendship that God gave them was such a beautiful friendship of deep love for one another. Sometimes our culture wants to do some strange stuff with that and make it be more than what it ever intended to be. And I feel like sometimes it's more of a kind of indictment on our culture's shallow understanding of what friendship is. There was a deep love between Jonathan and David, not this homosexual overtones, a deep friendship that God gave them. And in Eugene Peterson's book, I love what he says about this. He said, this friendship between David and and Jonathan bracketed and contained the evil. This friendship bracketed and contained the evil. Now, what does Eugene mean by that? Well, literally, if you go look at these two, three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, you'll notice this. In the first part of 18, you have the covenant between David and Jonathan and their friendship. You go to the end of chapter 20, and you see that covenant between those two renewed again. 
So literally in the Bible, it's bracketed. But what Eugene is trying to help us see is that this relationship contained the evil, that this relationship made it bearable, that this relationship made it survival. All I'm trying to say here is this, is that without this relationship, David would have grown weary and doing good and he would not have survived. Eugene Peterson says this, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. Friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It is every bit as significant as prayer and the word. Without David's friendship with Jonathan, he would have never made it. And the most dangerous time in his life. So how do I not grow weary in doing good? Well, I'll tell you how. God provides you friendship. You are a relational being. God made you to need people. I mean, I know it sounds almost heretical, but look, if you remember when God created humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, he created humanity in such a way that where God himself is not enough. God himself was not enough. He looked at Adam as a lonely person and says, that is not good. So he created for him a wife to where they can have a relationship of intimacy and oneness and a deep friendship. So, so God created us to need people. And part of that is what God uses to help us persevere and to not grow weary in doing good. If I look at my life, guys, and I'm sure you guys can do the same thing, there's always a someone in there. Like in moments where things are hard or difficult, you're growing weary, God always provides someone, kind of sometimes out of the blue that you wouldn't expect. For me, it's guys like a Scott Cedar, guys like a George Freebasizer, guys like a, a Tony Rose, guys like a Doug Walter, guy like Jim Cofield, who's preached here a few years ago, who became such a beautiful blessing for my wife and I as we went through a real dark, difficult season where we were growing weary and doing good. God provides friendships, relationships. Kathy and I went down to, um, to Memphis this weekend, a real quick trip to go see our oldest son running a cross-country meet down there. So we left kind of Friday afternoon, evening, went down there, got there about 9.30, 10 o'clock, spent the night, got up the next morning, um, and watched him race, hung out with him for a little bit, and then trekked back here to, uh, to my home. And so as I was sitting down last night, uh, kind of tired, <laughs> honestly, uh, and kind of putting some finished touches on this sermon, I, I was just reminded of the friendship that, my, that we have together, both Kathy and I, in this relationship that God has graced and gifted us with. And I don't know about you, sometimes when you go on on a date, it takes a while to kind of like talk, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and it kind of feels like that. Even for us, sometimes we get in the car and we've got this long trip that's going, man, like, wow, what are we gonna talk about? We don't have kids to talk about. We don't have all these issues and, and it just takes a while to kind of get there. But when you, you get there, it's like I was beautifully reminded, man, she is a wonderful gift in my life and she is by far the closest friend that I have who has 
been an encouraging presence, not just with her words, but just even with her life and helping me see things that I can't see, help me to get through seasons where I felt very weary of doing good. Friendships. Friendships. So here's what I know for a lot of us in this room, some of us are here and God's been really kind to you and you've got a lot of friends around you. You do. God's been gracious to keep you in one place maybe for maybe all your life and you have a core group of friends that have just been people you've been able to run with and go deep with for a long period of time. And I just, I just wanna say, man, that's a blessing from the Lord. It really is a gift. And I just wanna say, you know, encourage you to not only thank the Lord for that, but go to your friends and say, man, I thank God for you, man. You've been a real help to me. You've helped me in certain specific ways to not grow weary and doing good. But the reality for a lot of us, even in this room today, is that we're, we're lonely. We long for friends like Jonathan. And it's, it's interesting, um, even when you look at the life of David, I'm kind of doing a spoiler alert here in case you haven't read 1 Samuel. Dave, Jonathan dies. He gets killed in battle. And it's interesting, God doesn't seem like he ever provides another friend like Jonathan in David's life. I mean, he may have, but he chose not to record it. And so, like, some of what I take from that is, as I do, I think sometimes there are seasons of life where having these kind of deep friendships are really difficult. And all I want to say to that is to, um, is to recognize that sometimes it may just be the time and the season. And what I want to encourage you with is don't be satisfied with being lonely. Cry out to the Lord that he would provide for you friends like we see with Jonathan because you need them. Sometimes we just get to a place, oh, I don't need friendships. I don't need that. I'm done. No, God's created you to need others. It's a vital part of what God uses to keep you from growing weary of doing good. For some of you here, like, if you're married, yeah, I, I get it's, there's an important thing to have guy time and guy friends and girl time and girl friends. I, I, I get that. But sometimes I, I think we have a tendency to undervalue the friendship that God has given you and your spouse. Like, I just want to encourage you, cultivate that. Make yourself available to them. Open yourself up. Have disclosure between you and your spouse to where God can deepen that friendship so that you see, wow, God has given that gift to you to for you to help one another in seasons where it's really difficult and you're growing weary and doing good. So may the Lord bless us and help us to continue to create space here for those kinds of of friendships. And so, man, may you hear my encouragement. The Lord is at work. Do not grow weary in doing good. He is providing relationships and friends in your life to help you sustain and persevere. Let's pray.